Coming up on today's WAC podcast, we'll have Ron Lockery, the Deputy Commissioner of the Western Athletic Conference, who will talk about the WAC's Board of Directors call they had last week. We have a new start date to the fall season. We'll also talk to Hannah Bruce, the Stan Bates Awards winner, who's going to be heading to Oxford. Very interesting conversation with her. That's all ahead on the WAC podcast. Dallas swings and he crushes it. Left center field. Warning track walk. Goodbye. Today's episode of the WAC podcast is presented by Hercules Tires. Now here's your host, Eric Danner. Welcome to the WAC Podcast, brought to you by Hercules Tires. Eric Danner in Colorado Springs. Rachel Hill is still in Orlando, Florida, in the bubble with the MLS. Rachel, how are you doing today? I'm great, Eric. How are you? I, I'm doing great, Rachel. We were just uh, talking a little bit uh, before the show started here about your experience in Orlando. We'll get to that in uh, just a few minutes. First off, big news from the WAC Board of Directors this past week. They did set dates for competition uh, that uh, both women's soccer, men's soccer, volleyball, when they can start their actual competitions, about a about a three-week delay from where it originally was going to be. So good news in the sense that we're moving forward towards a fall season. And of course, I mean, there's always that caveat that this can always be changed, but September 10th for women's soccer, September 16th for volleyball and men's soccer. So, Eric, will they, I obviously wasn't in for that meeting, uh, will they be able to go to campus at normal times? And how has that affected, like, I know some universities are just planning to do online classes. So how will that work? Do yeah, it, it, it depends. I mean, school by school in that situation. And I have, it, it, I think basically what's happening here, Rachel, is trying, we're trying to buy as much time as possible. Um, so this way, okay, now we have a target date when we want to get started. Uh, hopefully, uh, the COVID uh, pandemic starts to tail off a little bit and, and some of the hot spots, uh, particularly in, in WAC cities that we've seen like Phoenix and in Texas, uh, where it's really uh, uh, going pretty strong where you are in Florida, obviously not where the WAC is, but there's certain hot spots in the country. So I think they want to see how much time they can buy before any more decisions have to be made. But yeah, that is a good question. Maybe we can talk to Ron Lockery about that in our next segment to see uh, where it is in relation to when schools are starting. Uh, I have not seen, Rachel, uh, if all our schools have made decisions on campus online. I know my daughter, her school just finally uh, sent something out on Friday where the students can go either online or in person. It's uh, one or the other, not both. And I think uh, kind of different schools, different uh, places around the country are going to have all kinds of ideas on how to get back to school. Interesting. I didn't know that they were going to give students like an option. That makes sense because obviously not everybody's case is the exact same. But what a unique like option for you to do high school. Like you can choose to do online or can you like do a mixture of both? Almost? You can't. Can it's like it's go? it's one or the other. She was kind of hoping it would be a mixture, you know, where you could do a little bit of both. But the other thing there, Rachel, is that if there are two positive COVID cases in the school everything goes back to online and in a school of 1600 students however many you know staff and and folks that work there uh, the the, uh, odds of having two people get uh, COVID I think are pretty high so it sounds to me like it would it would definitely be going to back to online now again this is a school district in Colorado Springs not 
uh, a university or college in the WAC. So I think everybody has as different uh, things that they're looking at there. But I think everybody also ideally would like to be back on campus. Wow. Yeah. I mean, even just looking at the Colorado Rapids organization, a team of, you know, 20 to 25 players and they still had two COVID cases that tested positive. So I can't even imagine like a school of 1600 students. Wow. That's it. That's such a small number. However, like health is obviously the number one priority. That's just surprising that two cases overall will rule everything. Right. And and like you said, I mean, there were two cases on the Rapids with, you know, 50 people or, or you know, between players and staff and all that good stuff. Uh, so, yeah, the odds are, are not good uh, as far as the in-person with that. But at the same time, you know, health and safety is, is you know, what, what we're after here. And it's a delicate balance uh, in the next few weeks. And actually, the NCAA came out with their uh, uh, return to sport guidelines uh, that uh, outline, you know, daily uh, self-health checks, uh, testing within 72 hours of competition for high contact sports, which does include, I believe, uh, soccer and volleyball. So it's um, a different world and uh, everything's trying to get started here. But uh, with those NCAA guidelines, that that's another thing that I think our, our schools have to look at because uh, what the WAC guidelines were versus what the NCAA, I think the, the testing is, is a little more robust uh, what the NCAA is looking for. Absolutely, yeah. Honestly, I'm just happy for all of the athletes to have hopefully an opportunity to compete and having a date in mind, I think, helps the training purposes as well. And then, uh, okay, so so you're in the bubble. Uh, Rapids, yep. uh, they're, they're, they're 0-2, unfortunately, uh, for, for Colorado Rapids fans. Uh, played a heck of a game uh, this weekend where they went up and then they, they had a couple red cards that had to finish with two players or two players down, so they were down to nine, and they wound up uh, losing that one, so they're now 0-2. Uh, do they still have a chance to advance to the uh, uh, the tournament? I forget, uh, the the, uh, the MLS's back tournament where the top two from their, from their pod of four uh, get to advance. So the way that this tournament is working is – the top two automatically qualify. And then I believe that there is two or three third place teams. Okay. So with that, the Rapids would need the favors to go their way on a lot of ways. They would have to win against Minnesota and they would have to put up a good amount of goals to do so. And then they would need Real Salt Lake to beat Sporting Kansas City. With that being said, Sporting KC and RSL will play wednesday morning at 9 a.m local time here in florida the rapids will pretty much already know their fate going into wednesday night when they play at 10 30 local time but at the same time it also is like this still counts towards the regular season this group stage all of the points count towards the regular season so even if they're not able to advance because maybe sporting kc wins i think they're still going to come out with a lot of firepower just based on the result against sporting kansas city and colorado being probably the better team Sunday night when they played and not getting the win and just trying to get the three points to go home with. Now, this is your second week in the bubble, Rachel. Actually, I guess the start of your third week because you've been there basically for two weeks. Are you yep. getting a little stir crazy uh, being in the same hotel room or or you, have you gotten in a routine where, where it's kind of like normal now to be in the bubble? 
I've kind of a routine of being down here in the bubble. I'm looking around my hotel room right now, and I can see four water bottles just, like, spread out that aren't completely empty and, like, <laughs> still have some water in it. So maybe going a little stir-crazy just <laughs> being in one room. However, the only thing that I have to complain about, and I give the that athletes huge props, is that they eat chicken or salmon <laughs> or some sort of fish for every single meal. Like, and I'm just one of those people, like, I switch it up all the time back at home. Like, I'm eating all sorts of things randomly, and they eat chicken. So it's, like, fruit, a salad, some sort of side, most likely veggies, and then chicken or salmon. And I don't know how they do this all the time. <laughs> I mean, the food is good. Like, don't get me wrong. The food is, like, pretty dang good because, obviously, like, chefs are making it. It's just the same things over and over and over again. It's I don't know how they do it. <laughs> now, are you still able to go work out and those kind of things? Or how does that work with, with the COVID uh, testing and all that good stuff? So there's a performance center here in the hotel, which gives access to different teams like at different times. So we are able to work out. I have not made it around to working out. That was one thing I wanted to do. I brought clothes to do so. I just haven't gotten around to it. You know, I'm constantly busy when I'm not working with the team like out at training and they're all in their hotel rooms while I'm doing other things around to create content for fans. So like I'm pretty much busy all the time, really. I mean, I, besides like the mornings, which we're still commuting with or um, talking to the people back in Denver. So when it's like 10 o'clock here, it's still eight o'clock in Denver, which means not everybody's up. They're not, you know, you haven't clicked in and tuned into work yet at that point. So Usually my day starts around like 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. down here. And then it's just go, 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 go until like 10 o'clock at night. Now, I did see on your social media, Rachel, you got drenched pretty good there the other night when they had a big <laughs> rainstorm come through. Not, nothing like a Florida rainstorm. I've had that happen, too, a, a few years back. I was at Disney World and, and a storm rolled in. And it, it's it's different than any other kind of rain I've ever experienced. Oh my gosh, Eric, I'm not kidding. So we were waiting for the buses to arrive before their match against Sporting Kansas City. And all of a sudden, you just see the sidewalk, probably like a football field away, or soccer field away, maybe even. And it's just rain coming and you just see it. And it's a wall of rain. And all <laughs> of us are like, oh my gosh, like run. So we're all trying to run and there's no place with cover. And I'm like, I'm wearing heels. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to run and, like, not fall. So I'm like, just, like, suck it up, Rachel. Like, everyone else here is about to get wet, too. So I'm like, just suck it up. Like, we found this tiny little, like, covering of a wall. There's, I don't even know what it was. And so we, like, stood there, like, covering up the tripod and the camera and everything else we had. And I was just like, okay, like, this is it. I mean, it makes for a great story, right? (laughs) You tune in and you're, like, soaking wet. And everyone's like, what the heck happened to you? And you're like, well, like, a storm came out of nowhere and we just caught drenched yeah so, i mean it's like it's like you took a shower in your clothes exactly and then the humidity like you never really feel like you're dry here anyways mm-hmm. it's just you're always wet regardless so i was i just kind of went with it and rolled with it and accepted my fate that i was going to get soaked but it probably rained for like 10 minutes and then it was done well hopefully that doesn't happen to you again while you're down there in orlando i did see <laughs> i was watching sunday night uh, the seattle sounders playing the Vancouver Whitecaps, Alex Rodon, got some uh, playing time as the, the Sounders, I believe, won three to nothing. They they look pretty powerful. Jordan Morris, former Stanford NCAA Player of the Year, had a couple goals in that one. So uh, good to see Alex get out on the pitch in uh, the MLS. Uh, 
Some news around the WAC, or Rachel Chicago State naming a new volleyball coach this past week, and uh, Tony Trivianov is their new head coach as they uh, get prepared, uh, like I said, uh, only about a month away before we start uh, volleyball action. I saw that, and I saw that he's got a pretty good resume there for himself. Uh, he led his former school to their first ever national number one ranking. They were back-to-back national junior college division one final four appearances, a runner-up finish in 2019. Like His resume looks great, so I'm happy he's a part of the WAC and obviously excited to hopefully get the season going this fall. Yeah, and he's a former Division One coach at uh, Florida A&M as well. We also named the Stan Bates Award winners this past week. Hannah Bruce of Utah Valley, who we'll have on in our third segment, and then also Alec Felix of Utah Valley. So the Wolverines sweeping those awards, and a big com- uh, component of that, Rachel, is the academic part, which we'll get into with Hannah quite a bit, but uh, there's also community service and what they did on the field. So that's a, a pretty prestigious award for both Hannah and Alex. Alec, I should say. Huge congratulations to both of them and to Utah Valley to have two student athletes be able to perform like that and be recognized. It's it's an incredible honor for both for both of them and also the university. UTRGV is our featured school this week in WAC Top Play, and I, I we, we probably could have done four Jordan Jackson dunks, but I was actually going off of <laughs> votes, uh, Rachel, and actually the Jordan Jackson dunks didn't get as many votes as you might think. So the uh, wow. the top seed going in is actually the triple play they had at Houston, which I believe you were in Houston when that happened uh, at swimming when uh, the baseball there. team was playing down there. That's right. And they had the triple play pretty rare. I think there was only three in college baseball uh, this year, obviously an abbreviated season, but it's a pretty rare occurrence. So that, uh, that goes in as the top seed. So that'll be uh, fun to watch to see what uh, the fans vote for UTRGV. Uh, we've been celebrating 30 years of women's sports in the WAC uh, the past few weeks on uh, WAC in the day. And part of that, Rachel, I mean, 30 years doesn't, I mean, when I saw that, I was like, wow, we, we've only had 30 years of women's sports. But there was a conference called the HCAC that a lot of WAC schools at the time were a part of, and they merged in 1990. So that, the HCAC actually started in 1982. But it is pretty amazing to think that, uh, the, the conferences with the, a lot of uh, Division One women's sports are, are new within the last 30 or 40 years and, and kind of how far we've come in, in terms of women's sports. How far we come, Eric, and how far we still have to go. Right. <laughs> it is, yeah, with everything going out this week, too, about women in sports, obviously major props to Anyone who is able to play at such a high level but also work in the sports as a woman, I've been so fortunate enough to be surrounded with really, really good people, both here at the WAC and then even at the Rapids, too, in my short time here. So I've been very, very lucky. And seriously, though, major like props to anyone that's been able to compete at such a high level. And it's crazy that it's 30 years and hopefully, you know, the next 30 years are even brighter. And we haven't talked about, I mean, the NBA is getting a lot of a pub down there in the bubble, Rachel, but the WNBA is also down there. And uh, I know the NWSL, the Women's Professional Soccer League, they've been doing a bubble-type format in in Utah. So uh, the, the the two kind of major professional women's sports leagues are, uh, are also continuing there. And um, I think we talked a little bit about it last week, Rachel, you, you don't... Get a ch- I mean, you're kind of in your hotel, you're kind of sequestered there, so you're not seeing LeBron James running around, I'm guessing. 
No. So what was actually funny is we had one day off and um, I shouldn't say I had the day off. I was still filming, but the team was able to go out and go golfing. So they have one golf course here that is just for people in the bubble. And we noticed that there were like a couple of people walking around the outside of it. And I'm like, all these people have to be looking for like some sort of player, like LeBron James, right? Right. Like, what an awesome, because Disney World's now open. So we're like, oh, that's right. Yeah. Here looking for, you know, some sort of big <laughs> athlete that they want to see. And we're just like, why are all these people? And we drove past the entrance to Disney, Eric, and I was shocked by the amount of people outside of it. No kidding. Like, absolutely shocked. I could not believe it. Well, I mean, you know, whenever I've gone to Disney, I mean, it's always jam-packed when it's a normal type of thing, and, and then people haven't been able to go all year, and, and even though there's all the the social distancing rules and masks and all that good stuff, I mean, people want their Disney, so, you know, um, I, I did see uh, this weekend, Rachel, I was watching uh, rugby <laughs> for a little bit mm-hmm. from New Zealand, I think it was on ESPN, might have been on FS1, and... New Zealand, uh, I guess, is at zero COVID. They they lock down the country and basically have no COVID. They are up and running, no social distancing, no masks, and it's just like a normal, nor, you know, normal game. You know, they thirty, forty thousand people in the stands. Oh, how I missed those days! And hopefully, we hopefully. as a country will get back to those days. <laughs> hopefully, we will now. <laughs> Excuse me, MLB will be starting up. This week on uh, Thursday, July 23rd. So that's another uh, good sign, I guess, in, in trying to get back to normalcy here. And uh, I know we have several uh, WAC players that uh, could be involved in that. Uh, with no minor league baseball, they expanded the rosters basically to a 60-man pool, they're calling it. Normally at the end of the year, there's 40. And they have 60 just, I, I assume, because they, you know, in case there is some COVID breakouts and those kind of things. And, and not having the AAA players to, to draw from. I did see uh, Nick Gonzalez, part of the Pirate 60. Uh, Daniel Johnson is part of the Cleveland uh, 60. And then also uh, Tyson Miller, former CBU player, in the uh, Chicago Cubs 60. So three guys that are trying to get to the majors might, might have an opportunity in the, in the next 60 games here. I love that. I'm so excited for all of those players. Obviously, Nick Gonzalez, because I was able to watch him in the WAC, fortunately enough. So, I mean, it'll be so cool to see. Hopefully, they can get out there and uh, put some work in and just continue moving up. Well, Rachel, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk with Ron Lockery, Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer of the Western Athletic Conference. We've had him on the show before. We'll talk about uh, the the Board of Directors' uh, decision for the start dates in uh, women's soccer, volleyball, and men's soccer when we come back on the WAC Podcast. We would like to thank our partners. Hercules Tires, Ticket Smarter, and Adidas. Now, back to the WAC Podcast. Welcome back to the WAC Podcast. Eric Danner with you, reminding you that Hercules Tires is the official tire of the Western Athletic Conference and for over 65 years has been providing tires with unbeatable quality at an unmatched value. Whatever the vehicle and whatever the terrain, Hercules Tires invites you to ride on our strength. For a retailer near you, visit HerculesTires.com. Eric Danner, in Colorado Springs, Rachel V. Hill is in Orlando, and we're now joined by Ron Lockery, the Deputy Commissioner, Chief Operating Officer of the Western Athletic Conference in Denver. Ron, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Eric. How are you guys? We're doing great, Ron. First <laughs> off, uh, 
Our big topic today is is the Board of Directors had a Zoom call last week. It was decided to delay the start of the fall season. Looks like about two or three weeks from where we're normally looking at. Uh, what were some of the factors that were went into that decision? Oh, you're right, Eric. Uh, the board voted to delay the start of women's soccer to September 10th, and men's soccer and volleyball are delayed until September 16th, which is approximately six weeks from the typical for, or the first allowable practice date. And it does back up the start of their schedule by, as you mentioned, about three weeks. Um, a great deal of it had to do with allowing more time uh, for the student athletes to work through the medical requirements uh, that would be asked of them once they return to campus and for institutions to prepare for the testing and monitoring that will take place. Um, there's going to be stringent parameters they'll have to meet, and it could take weeks before a team as a whole are ready to practice. You know, the one or two students that are, need to be quarantined or uh, maybe test positive, things like that. So um, the medical board and the contingency group work together to create, um, you know, they went just four weeks, is six weeks, is eight weeks, while eight weeks would certainly be, be the ideal. They kind of split the difference and uh, recommended to the board of directors to do six um, what we're really trying to do is uh, just trying to lengthen the runway a little, if you will. Um, there's, there was also a desire to allow for some local or regional non-conference games, if possible, uh, which we don't know for sure yet. Um, other than the Pac-12, the conferences around us closest to some of our schools haven't announced their intentions. So um, it may pro- prohibit non-conference games anyway, but at least this gives them an opportunity right now to – uh, I'll use for an example for UVU to play BYU or, or not Utah because they're in fact 12, but BYU right. or Utah State, something like that that's regionally based that are they're in this somewhat of the same situation. So that's the that was the idea behind that. Ron, what is the testing going to be like for student athletes, or will it depend on the university? Is there something in place that the WAC is saying like this has to be done this certain way? Yes, our medical advisory committee. Um, they were offered recommendations that were passed. So the PCR testing is really the only, the nasal swab is really the only one that um, right now um, our medical advisory committee would uh, advocate for. I mean, there's the antigen testing is coming on and uh, like a couple of our medical uh, professionals that were on our committee said it is getting better, but it's still offered too many false negatives um, for them to be comfortable um, clearing teams, especially when we start, uh, if we gear up and start playing games, that that they didn't see that as a, a proper mechanism to clear teams to then go and compete against other teams. It, it could lead to uh, again some false negatives and um, people being out there on the field that were in fact uh, uh, carrying the virus. Talking with Ron Lockery, Deputy Commissioner of the WAC. And Ron, we uh, we saw after the announcement the WAC made on Wednesday of last week, some other conferences came out with similar announcements. The week before, we saw the Ivy League announce that they were either canceling or postponing their fall sports. And so it seems like everybody's kind of uh, has the same issue trying to figure out how the best way to, to handle this. How much conversation is going on between the conferences and commissioners and folks like that? Uh, so much you couldn't imagine. Uh, I think, um, I know Commissioner Hurd's on it at no less than four uh, Collegiate Commissioner Association calls a week. Mm. Um, I'm on two of those. Two of them are co- uh, commissioners only. 
the two of them listen in on. Uh, the, the communication is just, uh, every, you know, we all know what each other are doing. I mean, um, we know when a release is coming out before it comes out um, and what a situation um, conference or institutions are dealing with. Um, and while we're all kind of in the same boat, there's no cookie cutter that fits. You know, we, we're all in different states. We're all in different regions uh, with just different situations and so what works for one conference maybe doesn't work for another and but but the communication is very thorough um and i just don't think there's 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 no much not much more i mean we can't be on the phone all day with everybody but we certainly are trying so uh um great communication going on Ron, I know there's been some talk of moving fall sports to the springs what kind of you know, I know that's probably a lot easier said than done. What uh, difficulties are there with doing something like that? Well, as you mentioned, Rachel, it would be difficult. Uh, it's possible. Um, uh, discussions we've had with uh, within the conference center around the issues of staffing and facilities. Uh, if the school is hosting a soccer match and a softball series and a baseball series at the same time, and, and we try not to do that with our scheduling now, but if we're all uh, in one you know, one set of time, we may not have those options of staggering schedules and et cetera. So that if that happens, it spreads staff pretty thin. I mean, our, our staffs are pretty small as, as they are. And I'm talking like athletic trainers, uh, facility management, uh, things like that. So, um, and the other part is the facilities, several of our institutions, they don't have alternate facil- facilities. So if you're trying to work, for example, we bring volleyball season to the spring and basketball is, finishing up or um, at the tail end of its season, uh, that, that gets very difficult. We experienced that a little in the fall with volleyball finishing and basketball starting up. But, you know, those are basketball non-conference games. You can move them to various days of the week. And whereas conference, you know, we'd be kind of on top of each other. So that gets very difficult. Um, as for the NCA, you know, they've talked about it. And um, while they use the word it's feasible, um it's it's probably not budget wise i mean the the last report i heard they indicated they would need to hire what essentially a championship staff b uh temporarily just to handle all the championships um so so as as a staff and our at our institutions we have that scenario built into our contingency plans because if it comes to fruition we want to be able to offer that championship experience to our student athletes but it, it would be difficult we're sitting here in July. We record the show uh, July 20th here on Monday. and Before long, the, the winter sports are going to be starting up as well. Swimming and diving, typically the first one to go. They, they usually start in September with their practices. H- how far along are we with winter sports uh, planning, Ron, uh, since we're, we're still dealing with the fall right now? Well, we included uh, swimming and diving in the fall sports discussion, and it'll be allowed to start at its regular first day of practice and first opportunity for competition. Um, similar like to cross country uh, and other sports, the crossover all sessions like golf uh, and tennis, we'll move forward with them as well. Um, we also have non-traditional seasons for softball and baseball right. you know, coming up. So these sports, because they do not fit the definition of high risk, like soccer and volleyball do, um, we're required to adhere to the same medical procedures as all the sports, but their seasons were not moved back in, in the uh, 
a scenario we um, proposed to the board. Um, they historically start around the same time frame as the restrictions we have on soccer and volleyball. So our medical community, uh, they were confident in allowing them to progress. Um, obviously, the larger question now becomes, uh, I think you were probably <laughs> referencing our men's and women's basketball, mm-hmm. and they have certainly moved to the forefront of our discussions, uh, both in the conference and nationally. I mean, what, how will that look? And um, I think the last call I was on, and it, they talk about it quite a bit, but is it, are we going to start January 1st? that type of scenario with men's and women's basketball. So that's to be determined, um, but it will certainly, it certainly now rises to the top of the discussions. That was going to be my next question for you. The possibility of basketball not starting until after January 1st, is that even a realistic possibility? I, I, yes, (laughs) I think it's, um, you know, as I, as we have conferences um, around the nation um, postponing, you know, a lot of them aren't saying there, there's a few that have said we're moving all our fall sports to the spring. But others have said uh, we're looking for a January 1st start date to try, trying to figure out where to put these sports. Um, so I think the January 1st date is out there. And uh, that has been discussed on these calls, the myriad calls we have of um to try and save the basketball season if the fall gets untenable and sports are canceled and NCAA championships are canceled, would there be a way to, um, to gear up January 1st, proceed with conference play only in all the conferences, and then um, have the, the basketball committees formulate seating policies based on that because there won't be any, you know, any non-conference play or, or games against non-conference opponents to, to gauge off of. So, yeah, it, it, just as we're planning for contingency, should we move our championships? I know the NCA and other conferences are planning for that contingency that, that could happen. And, Ron, when this uh, COVID pandemic uh, broke out in March and the WAC canceled the, the basketball tournament, as, as many other conferences did that week, the NCAA very shortly after canceled March Madness and I, I don't remember if it was the same time frame or, or shortly thereafter, they canceled the spring championships, which are about two or three months away. Looking back on it, I mean, obviously the, the COVID really ramped up there and that was the right decision to make. At this time on July 20th, we have not seen the NCAA take those measures to cancel any championships as of yet. Of course, by the time we get off this call, who knows? <laughs> so there's so many things changing. Yeah. Um, is is that because I I would assume just because everything is changing so rapidly we haven't seen that direction from the NCAA. Well, I think that, and then you know, given the fact that when we're all canceling basketball championships, you know, I, I don't want to say it was an emergency situation, but we didn't have the uh, I'll use the same the the runway. We didn't have time to discuss. You know, what how are we going to test? How are we going to play? How what are the parameters of bringing kids? They're already on campus, but the schools are sending them home. How are we going to uh, play these games? And, and it just, I think it was untenable. And so the, the the situation at the time dictated that we, we just need to cancel them because we don't have the, the wherewithal and the, the, the things required to play sports. And, and I think that, you know, it stretched across the world. It was high school, it was pro, it was whatever. So now um, I think in, in the build up to fall sports, given the time we've had and, and it hasn't been used 
recklessly. I, like I said, I think starting uh, two weeks after the end of basketball championships, the call started, and it's been uh, pretty nonstop. You know, Dr. Hainline with the NCA keeps us very uh, up to date. Um, the things that change, as you said, weekly, uh, sometimes daily. Uh, heck, we had a call with him one time, and it changed while he was on the call with hmm. us. So, um, you know, I, I think that's what. If I had to say, they're not doing it. The other thing, too, I mean, we and like I said, we have calls with the NCA, and it's kind of the overwhelming sentiment that the conferences right now are saying, individually, let us see what we can do, just as we did. Maybe you know, moving our games back allows us that time to get acclimated. Maybe something happens, you know, and and I think they're they're asking the NCA for that time and not being. Uh, across the board cancel everything so we'll see how it plays out but i think you know a lot of conferences are already doing it and some i think are ready to flip the switch at any given time so the WAC has formed a, a few committees to kind of deal with this pandemic we talked to athletic trainer sarah fow at seattle u last week on the podcast what's one of the ideas behind these committees well really um rachel just to rely on knowledge and experience to drive our policies you know um for athletic administrators to sit and talk about testing and uh, all that, that make, doesn't make any sense. So we formed the Medical Advisory Committee uh, that included every institution's head athletic trainer. And then we had six athletic department team physicians on the committee as well. And then we had um, two or three administrators to kind of, you know, give input on what's what a school's capable of. Should they go too far one way or another? So. The, that committee has brought the varied knowledge and local circumstances together to formulate our baseline requirements that each member institution must meet, not only on campus, but when we prepare to play as well. If you're hosting, when you're traveling, when you arrive at a school, all those things are uh, spelled out. So as I mentioned earlier, each conference and each member in that conference brings uh, unique issues and circumstances to the situation. So no cookie cutter formula would work even in our conference. Uh, they had to consider each school's facilities, uh, its location in what state it's in, what region it's in, county rules, city ordinances. So a lot of work uh, was that, and each each of them added so much to the these the ultimate recommendations they came up with. And you, you mentioned Sarah, but our other co-chair, Dr. Kareem Shiloh from Grand Canyon, uh, they did a tremendous job in leading this committee. I mean, they would have homework assignments and they had uh, calls off to the side with two or three that were dealing with different situations. So I was very, very proud of the, the work this group did and what they brought forward to for us to look at. Uh, the other committee was the Contingency Planning Committee, and its task was to develop the parameters to handle the situation. If we begin to play, what happens if a team can't travel? Or, you know, we have right now we have, uh, two or three institutions that if you fly into their city, you're in a 14 day automatic quarantine. So, I mean, that precludes play right there. So if we are playing in that situation, obviously teams can't go there and play. How do we handle that? How do we handle two games not played? Or, you know, I go on the road and one of my student athletes tests positive. It, my entire team is out for 72 hours. So that eliminates Thursday's match. It could eliminate um, the Sunday match. So this, this committee was put together to formulate how we would handle that and what it looked like for seeding, uh, eligibility for championships, 
I mean, there's just so many things that could happen. Official uh, officiating. How many? How how low will we go as far as uh, officials on the court? If one's sick or one can't arrive, one can't fly in, do we? You know, is it allowable to go with two in mm. men's basketball? Is it allowable to go one person on an entire soccer field? So those were the things this committee uh, worked on. I want to hop in one more time, Eric, before you ask another question. Uh, it would just be the flights. I know that's been like one thing here in the MLS that they've been talking about. Fun fact, actually, MLS doesn't always fly charter flights like a majority of pro sports. And so now they're trying to figure out to do how to do charter flights for players. Is that even a possibility for any of the schools in the WAC to fly out of charters? I know some of the bigger universities have that option. Uh, well, I won't speak for them, but I would imagine it's not. Um, you know, you're especially when we're talking the sports we're dealing with right now with, um, you know, men's soccer, women's soccer, volleyball. The, the numbers just aren't there to, to charter a flight. Um, mm-hmm. And the expense, you know, we're, we all hit last year with tremendous um, slashes to budgets. And so I don't, I don't see that as a possibility, and I think that's really – some of the thinking um, behind what we did last week um, was, was trying to trying to play a waiting game and see if something changes. Because you know, as I mentioned, if we have schools with 14-day quarantines when you arrive, I mean, it just becomes just really difficult to to, to play sports. Um, and that, that you know, several of the board of directors expressed that sentiment that. You know, just I would have a hard time placing my student athletes on an airplane right now. And that was said several times. So, Moran, hmm. this has been a very interesting conversation. I want to end on a on a high note here, if we can. And uh, uh, Dixie State and Tarleton State both became official members of the WAC on July 1st. Judging by their uh, social media content, both very excited. Their fans are excited to be in the WAC in Division One. What What do you see as these two schools are bringing to the WAC once we start up fall sports here. Well, I, I agree with your sentiment, Eric. I wish I wish their um, entrance into our conference wasn't being overshadowed by this current situation. Um, the level of excitement at these two schools and from their student athletes on social media, but even you know, just in knowing it is so great and their desire to be involved in all aspects of the conference, you know, the student athlete advisory committee and things like that. It, and really for them to just compete in the conference as Division One athletes, I mean, it's going to resonate throughout the league. I mean, the excitement of them going to our different uh, institutions and cities and then our current members uh, visiting um, Tarleton and Dixie State, I, it's just going to give us give us life and uh, bring us bring us forward. And um, the other thing they offer, and this, this was no small thing, is uh, the conference that offers us conference money-saving travel partner-based trips. Uh, with Tarleton in Texas, we compare them with UTRGV, and Dixie State is right down the road from UVU. So the more a conference can shorten the time on the road for student-athletes, the better it is for them competitively and certainly academically. And as I mentioned, it saves our members costs on travel. And uh, these two schools provide the whack that opportunity. And, and But again, more so, we're just so excited to have them in and their competitive um, experience and what they can bring to the league. Well, hey, Ron, we want to thank you for taking some time out today. I know uh, there's, there's a lot going on. And like we said, uh, 
could be changes uh, made as we speak here, but uh, at least there's a plan in place here where we're targeting September 10th, September 16th as our start dates for the fall, and, and hopefully that comes to fruition. We have our fingers crossed, that's for sure, Eric. All right, that is Ron Lockery, Deputy Commissioner, Chief Operating Officer of the Western Athletic Conference. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Hannah Bruce, formerly of Utah Valley, Stan Bates Award winner and Rhodes Scholar finalist. You're listening to the WAC Podcast. We would like to thank our partners, Hercules Tires, Ticket Smarter, and Adidas. Now, back to the WAC Podcast. Welcome back to the WAC Podcast. Eric Danner, along with Rachel V. Hill, we are now joined by Hannah Bruce, the Stan Bates Award winner from Utah Valley. Hannah, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Hannah, first off, congratulations on winning the Stan Bates Award. Uh, what were, were some of your thoughts when when you got that news? Because it's obviously a very uh, uh, prestigious award to get in the Western Athletic Conference. Yeah, I was really excited. I didn't even really know a lot about awards that the WAC gave out um, until like I found out about it through like my athletic department. And it was definitely a huge honor. Um, I have gotten like awards through like my school before for being like a student, like top student athlete, but being recognized like by the WAC was definitely a huge honor. And I was super excited that like to be recognized. Did you know that you were up for the award before it was given out? Yes, I did. Yeah. So the anticipation, how was that to kind of wait to get the, or to find out if you were the actual winner? Um, I feel like I'm like used to waiting for stuff like because I've applied you know just for like university and um like different programs and scholarships that I have applied for that I like I'm used to the wait but it doesn't really get easier you know because it's obviously something that I want and that like I'm excited about and but it was it was okay. Yeah, you are up for some major things there, Anna, that we'll we'll get to in a minute. First off, let's talk a little bit about this past season at Utah Valley, a women's soccer team. You make it to the championship and went to overtime against Seattle U. So a very good season. You're first team all whack. Looking back on your career now, what, what are some of the highlights uh, looking back of the four years you spent at Utah Valley? Um, I mean, it was amazing. Like, I really never imagine the type of experience I would have had playing like division one playing for Utah Valley um, being from like a small area in like Nova Scotia there like isn't a whole lot of like traveling and maybe we went to Boston a couple times but it's not like a whole lot and you're playing like smaller teams smaller programs so getting to play in the states I mean I never really realized I mean traveling throughout the whole country went to Hawaii went to Costa Rica um, went like spent this past preseason in Michigan just a lot of amazing experiences and I mean I never would have thought I'd be playing the first round NCAA against Stanford um, who went on to win it that year playing the Argentina national team the Costa Rican national team definitely just unbelievable experiences that I never imagined like I'd have and then aside from like the soccer aspect but just like the bonds I like created with like my teammates and my coaches and you know, people throughout the athletic department as a whole was definitely an amazing experience. Being from Nova Scotia, what really attracted you to Utah Valley? So I have a little bit of a family in Utah. So it was kind of like home away from home. I had been when I was like super young, but it was an opportunity to play division one, have some family. My sister actually was a student at BYU 
in Provo. So she was 10 minutes away from me and she's a year or so older than me. So I came out and she was already here. So that was nice. I love, first of all, I love Orem too. And that whole area is just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it is. Now you're in Nova Scotia right now. Is is that correct? Yeah. Tell us about Nova Scotia. What What's it like there? Is there a lot of soccer? Did you grow up playing soccer there? Yeah, I, there's a lot of soccer. Soccer is pretty popular. I mean, you have soccer, then obviously hockey is super popular out here too. Um, but a lot of kids grew up playing soccer, especially in the summer. Um, and I mean, there are good programs on the women's side. We're smaller in comparison to, you know, programs that you'd have in Ontario or BC, um, even Quebec. But so when we would go to nationals, we'd have an all-star team made up from Nova Scotia, from the Atlantic provinces. So we'd have like Nova Scotia, PEI, Newfoundland, and New Brunswick make one team. And then we'd go to nationals playing like Ontario, Quebec, and all those teams. So it's, we're smaller, but we, we make it work. <laughs> <laughs> we're obviously in very unique times right now with COVID. I, obviously things are all up in the air, but I know you signed a professional contract to go play with a team in Puerto Rico. What is that looking like for the upcoming future? Yeah. So I played in Puerto Rico for a few months and then it got cut short um, because of COVID. And I, my contract was set to end in May anyways, this summer I was, I mean, everything's been up in the air because of the pandemic because I was looking at going overseas, but like to Portugal, I had a couple of contracts in line, but then the league kept getting pushed back for the start date. So because I'm going to England for my master's, it, it just didn't make sense to go overseas for a month. Um, where I'd have to be leaving in September anyways for school. But I do have a couple teams that I'm looking at playing for when I'm in England. So that's exciting. So I'm kind of just waiting. I wish I was playing right now, but it's okay. It'll come back around in a few months, hopefully. We're talking with Anna Bruce, formerly of Utah Valley, and you got a chance to play professionally in Puerto Rico, as you just mentioned. What was that like? Uh, did you just play teams around Puerto Rico? Um, what was the feeling like actually being a professional soccer player? Um, it was it was a good experience in terms of, you know, getting to play in a different, um, like, area, like on a tropical island, meet different people, play with different girls. Um, the level, like, Puerto Rican soccer is still developing and still growing. So, like, I felt like the level wasn't what I would have liked it to have been. But I definitely learned a lot and still developed as a player, especially on the technical side. We did a lot of technical work. Uh, we trained with the men's team there. But for I have future goals of playing at a higher level, and I would like to play at the professional level in teams that are more developed and just a higher level for sure. But it was still still a good experience for my first contract. You mentioned going and getting your master's in England. What will you be getting your master's in? Uh, clinical and therapeutic neuroscience. Very nice. Yeah, very, very <laughs> impressive. And then Hannah, you're going to be going to Oxford, uh, which yeah. Uh, I mean, you talk about the the great universities in the world you can go to. I mean, it's it's one maybe the best one. And you're a Rhodes Scholar finalist. Tell us about that. What is that? And and when do you find out if you get the Rhodes Scholar? So and actually, that process happened in the fall so I was a yeah I was Rhodes finalist and I flew into Nova Scotia for the interviews 
So I did that in November and there were eight finalists. So it was exciting. I never would have thought, I mean, I would have even been a finalist. Um, so when I got that news, I remember I was at a team dinner and I don't know where we were. Maybe it was Michigan. Uh, no, I don't know where we were at, but we were away for a trip with our team. And then we were sitting, actually it was during the WAC tournament. It was when we were in Seattle mm. and we were sitting out at dinner and then I like checked my email really quick. Cause I had been like anticipating and waiting and just whether I was going to get it or not, um, get it to like to be a finalist and when I like pulled up the email I was like super like ecstatic so excited um and then I flew out to Nova Scotia went to New Brunswick for the interviews and it was an insane experience I mean you it was like kind of like a mingle session like first for the first hour um then you sat down at dinner the all the people interviewing you were kind of rotating through and then the next day you did a like one-on-one interview um definitely a little bit nerve-wracking um doing such a big interview I've never experienced doing something like that before um I didn't end up being selected there were two other girls they picked two of the eight and they ended up like getting the scholarship but then afterwards I was kind of like do I still apply because a lot of people if they don't get the scholarship they don't apply and they do other things um but I was like you know what like I'm going to apply. Like I, it was kind of a last minute decision because I wasn't sure how I would do if I would get accepted without being a Rhodes scholar, but I applied. And then, um, I had already, I had gotten accepted to other programs. So I was already, I was anticipating going back to the university of Utah actually. Um, cause I got a good offer there, but then, so I was telling everyone, Oh, I'm moving back to Utah. And then next thing you know, I got an email saying I was accepted and I was completely mind blown. So definitely that was a whole game changer, but instantly, I mean, that was the plan. Like if I got accepted to Oxford, <laughs> I'm going to Oxford. So do you know what your future like will look like the next coming months going to Oxford? I mean, is things over there still okay with the pandemic? Has anything really hit over there? Yeah, they they definitely have had like a decent amount of cases. I don't know like the numbers or anything, but I've been getting updates regularly from Oxford and from my program advisors and they're still set to start as usual. My I'm pretty sure my master's class is maybe 20 students so we're a small program to begin with and a lot of programs are like that especially in like your master's and phd programs um but i think you know there will be like minor adjustments if things can be done online i think that will happen but they're planning on starting as usual i like have my housing all set up so i'm like really excited to get going when will you head out with a 4.0 at Utah Valley. So obviously you've been a, a very yeah. good student for a long time. Shouldn't have been that big of a surprise to get into to Oxford. What, what are you going to be uh, studying and what do you hope to do uh, once you graduate? Yeah, so clinical therapeutic neuroscience. It's a 12-month program, three continuous semesters. After my program, I'm thinking of seeing where professional soccer can take me. Um, so maybe doing that. I'll, a lot of women still, like in the like playing professional soccer still work a lot it's not like you're making the same amount of money as like men would be making so I'm hoping to get into my field a little bit but then still be playing professional soccer and seeing where that can take me for like another couple years but the goal would be I want my like to get my PhD or my DPhil if I'm still in the UK or in Europe 
and then either teaching, like being like a professor, working with kids with like different neurodevelopmental disorders. So that would be one route. But then, I mean, I have so many like possibilities of like what I want to do. So I'm not even really sure exactly what I want to do. Um, I did my second year at Utah Valley. I went to a conference, the NCA Leadership Forum in Orlando, and there was a guest speaker who worked at the NCA Sports Science Institute, and that kind of caught my interest a little bit. So even getting in and getting back into athletics without actually being like a coach, because that's not really something that I'm overly interested in doing, but working for the, like the Sports Science Institute, I think would be like really exciting um and doing like research whether it's like concussions or working with athletes in that area I think would be cool so I don't know we'll see I know you did a good amount of volunteer work while you were in Utah why do you think that that's so important I just always liked giving back to my community I did a ton in high school out here in Nova Scotia and then as soon as I got to Utah I just instantly researched ways I could get involved um, I, yeah, just love giving back to my community. I feel like I got a lot out of, like, from my community growing up, where I just wanted to give back in any way that I could. I also think it's good just to get that hands-on life experience through volunteer work. I love making a difference, and I love working with kids, so a lot of my volunteer work was based around working with um, kids and youth. I like being a role model and just making a difference in their lives. And then I also think it helps for just like understanding like different types of people and I know like having compassion. And I think it also helps me personally build my confidence and like makes me feel good while also making other people feel good. So it's, I don't know, best of both worlds, I guess. <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> now, do you see yourself returning to Nova Scotia when you're done with soccer when you're done with your schooling i mean you've been to, to utah you know for four years you're going to to england here you mentioned uh, possibly portugal for professional soccer where do you see yourself winding up uh, when when you're done with all your schooling and soccer um i i kind of see myself ending back up in the states just because there are a lot of opportunities there um just in terms of like academia if i were to do research and work for like a university. I mean, I would love to work for like an Ivy League um, in the States. Um, and like I was saying with the Sports Science Institute, working with the NCA, I just think there yeah, are just a lot of opportunities in the States and bigger like organizations that I can see myself returning there. I love Nova Scotia. I love home, but I'm just like not like maybe like down the road, like later on. But for now, I still like just want to travel, live in different cities um see what I can do around the world I don't know I would obviously love to visit Nova Scotia one day so I just need to know best food out there to eat <laughs> oh our seafood is so good if you're a seafood person then we have so many like fishing communities are right on the coast um I mean fish and chips the clams um lobster I mean all honestly seafood you just can't go wrong oh I love seafood so I'll take it <laughs> okay <laughs> Hannah, it sounds like, I mean, you have so much going on. I, I, I imagine you see yourself as a role model to, to younger kids. Yeah, I do. What, uh, what do you hope to convey to kids? You said you've worked with them quite a bit. What, what uh, yeah. lead by example, or do, do you have uh, 
a speech to give to kids. We'll, we'll give you the floor here as, as far as uh, playing college athletics, how that helped your life and, and pursuing your dreams. Yeah, so I guess, so in terms of youth and athletes, I I would say just like continue to like to work and um, like harden your sport and realize like there's so many benefits to being an athlete, whether you make it at like the top college level or not, but just even in youth sports, I mean, the leadership skills you develop and um, like the connections you build and work ethic and all of that stuff just helps you in every other aspect in life. Um, and then, so with that, I would say, yeah. So just like with sports, it's so helpful and just to learn all those lessons and apply them to other areas of your life. And then for like non-athletes, I've worked with a lot of just other youth in different environments. Um, it's just to keep like working at, you know, at school and, you know, stay motivated and they're like out of trouble. <laughs> and um, I like, like, cause I came from like, I don't know, like an environment that, you know, it didn't have a lot of money, um, you know, and there's a lot of different routes like kids can take um, and based off of like their environment, it can be tough, but just to find something that you're passionate about and like use that to motivate you like to keep going. And I like that because I have come from like a different type of environment that I can relate well to different types of kids and just hopefully be a positive influence and role model and help them see that regardless of what environment you come from, you can still like do really big things with your life. Hannah, I know you want to continue that playing career, but past that, would you ever think about getting into coaching? Um, I am coaching right now, actually, <laughs> like a full-time job, but and I do love like working with kids, but coaching like is definitely more of a temporary thing for me. Um, I enjoy it, but it's not where I see myself like down the road. <laughs> well, Hannah, congratulations on winning the Stan Bates Award. Congratulations on all your success in soccer and in the academics. Good luck at Oxford. Uh, we're, we're definitely going to want to keep an eye on you in, in the future. And, and maybe we can have you back on the podcast before too long. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. That is Hannah Bruce from Utah Valley, formerly of Utah Valley, now Oxford University. We also want to thank Ron Lockery for joining us. And we want to thank you for listening to the WAC Podcast. Thanks for listening to the WAC Podcast. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And check out our website at WACsports.com.